Hey Amen. If you've got a Bible, let's open up to Matthew 17. I'm going to read verses 14 through 21. This is a go-to scripture for me each and every um, year as we in, go into Bible school. Um, it's a scripture that I'm confronted with again and again in a way that humbles me and burdens me. Um, and uh, this is a text that I put on my required reading list. Maybe you've got books that you reread and, and, and uh, always go back to. Maybe you've got TV shows or movies that you do that with. Um, maybe there are books of the Bible or chapters of the Bible that you like to read again and again. Uh, Matthew 17, uh, particularly these verses, are uh, some scriptures that I just am constantly reading because I, I feel like this is kind of keeping me honest. And it reminds me of what my mission is and it reminds me of what our mission is. Um, and, uh, you know, when it comes to the conversation of children and children's ministry, um, it's something that many of us may say, well, that's not for me. Um, and some people say ministry isn't for me. Of course, all of us have a ministry. We all have been called to serve the Lord and, and the capacity that we are gifted with and, and, and op- the opportunity that we're given. Um, but tonight is going to be all about uh, God's heartbeat for children. Um, the title of the message is For the Kids. Um, one of my favorite movies, a Christmas movie, is Home Alone. I love the scene when Kevin goes into the grocery store and he fills up his cart with all the uh, stuff that he needs to take care of himself, the detergent and um, the macaroni and cheese. And then he has the, the basket, of the, the bag of army um, men, and uh, she looks at him funny. He says, those are for the kids. Um, so that's uh, what I think about when uh, uh, I, I uh, title this message. I was thinking about um, how some things we often label as for the kids, as if that's a different conversation, a different ministry, a different um, you know, area of interest for different people, for certain people. But maybe it's a conversation the whole church needs to have, and maybe it's something that uh, we all need to come to terms with as an obligation we've been given um, as members of the kingdom of God, as members of the church of Jesus Christ. So Matthew 17, verse 14 We enter into this story, uh, and when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, Jesus, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into fire and often into water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Now, the word epileptic there is a Greek word that uh, some uh, re- refer to as, uh, you'll see that where they refer to someone being, has a demon, doesn't mean demon possessed, it just means has something wrong that nobody really knows what to do with, and a diagnosis that no one really understands how to treat and, and how, to, how to accommodate. Um, but clearly, this was something that was causing great affliction for this boy, and the father was at his wit's end. And you can't imagine what it was like to be in the world that they were in 2,000 years ago. Um, literally, every sickness was considered a judgment. Every uh, common cold was considered a curse. Um, Anybody that had a problem that couldn't be healed by just common medicine or common remedies, uh, people thought that they were being judged by God. And for someone to have a child that had this sort of condition, um, there was no mercy for them in religion. There was no uh, accommodation for them in religion. There was no place for them in religion. The, The religious system that was meant to bring people to God turned people like this away. So this man thought that Jesus's group would be accepting of him and his son and thought that they would have something to help, offer help to him and his son. But the disciples could not help this boy. But there's more to that. We'll get to that in a minute. Then Jesus answered and said, Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you or put up with you? Literally, the Greek there is bear with you. He says, How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. Now notice Jesus sounds like he's scolding someone in that, 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 in that verse. He's not scolding the father. He's not scolding the father nor the son. He's scolding the disciples. 
for not knowing what to, maybe not wanting anything to do with this boy. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? Notice they're not concerned about helping the boy. They're just, they're just concerned about doing the miracle because that's really what they were in this for, doing things that got them attention. They could care less about the boy. So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there. And it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. There's a pretty interesting and I think deep, important conversation we're going to have around that text. But I want to kind of unpack it. I want to kind of dive into this area that Matthew, uh, that we're in in the book of Matthew. Uh, this particular section of Matthew is really a roller coaster ride for the disciples. Um, if you read the middle portion of Matthew, the main character really goes from being Jesus to Matthew, Jesus to the disciples. The disciples kind of take the front stage. Jesus sent them out to do ministry and he's kind of watching them from the background. And every once in a while he'll enter back into the main stage and he'll say, y'all are doing this wrong. Uh, y'all need me to show you how it's done again. And of course the attention shifts back to him not, not long after this chapter. Um, but Jesus is kind of letting them get their feet wet into ministry um, in this portion. Now, we looked at Matthew 16 this morning and kind of talked about that as Jesus has kind of cast his vision for the church. And of course, they kind of have their idea of what it's going to look like, and he has to rebuke them. Uh, back in Matthew 16, we see the disciples confess that Jesus is Messiah, and they can't wait to see him do things that they thought a Messiah would do. And then Jesus rebukes them because their ideas and their interests and their plans are different than his. Peter is all about, hey, let's build a kingdom and let's make you king and let's let's you know build us some uh, uh places around you to enjoy life from but jesus rebukes peter and then jesus says i'm going to jerusalem to die and if you're going to follow me you're going to have to pick up your cross and go that same way now then comes the transfiguration another mountaintop moment literally jesus is adorned in heavenly glory and remember peter james and john go up to the mountain with him and they are just in awe of what they see and the the, the they quickly make it about themselves um, if you read that story back at the earlier part of matthew 17 they walk off the mountain and they are high stepping they think you know what we're a cut above the rest we are the greatest in the kingdom nobody has anything on us peter james john we're the big three the other guys they're below us and the rest of the world, they don't have a chance. So in today's world, you know, people compete with each other as to how to look the holiest online. You know, social media, everybody wants to try to look like they're holier than everybody else and they know more and they have, have the right thing to say. You know, that's nothing new. People have been trying to look holy and compete with each other uh, since the beginning of this thing. Um, 2,000 years ago, it was no different. The disciples were always trying to one-up each other. So that brings us to our text where this dad is bringing his son to them, hoping that they can help him, hoping for a miracle. And Jesus had given them the ability to demonstrate his power. He had given them the temporary ability that he had, of course, in all of his glory, to display the power of God, to show that God could do for sin. And by demonstrating his power over sickness and disease, it was showing them that God could change people's lives. He could forgive sins. He could raise people back to life from, uh, from depravity and, and from condemnation. So when they get confronted with this situation... For some reason, they could not help this child. And based on Jesus' response, it seems they really didn't put much effort into it. 
Maybe they thought they would make quick work of the child and turn it into, uh, but when it turned into a difficult task and they weren't willing to give him the necessary devotion and attention, they realized they couldn't help him. Maybe they didn't think they could get any recognition from helping this random kid, so they just weren't interested in wasting the time. Needless to say, they pass on this little boy, but the father was desperate and he made every attempt to get to Jesus and find real help. Jesus then turns and rebukes the disciples, much like he had rebuked Peter previously. And I think there's a correlation there. He rebuked Peter because Peter was all about himself, all about what he might could gain from being next to the Messiah. And I think we see the disciples missing the boat as to what Jesus envisioned for them, what he was establishing with the church. Back in Matthew 16, he preached on self-denial and sacrifice. Take up your cross, follow me, deny yourself. And here in Matthew 17, he preaches on prayer and preparation to serve the least in the kingdom. Not least is in unimportant, but least is in what people, uh, how people rank and how people consider um, importance, which should never happen, but that's how people are. We put people in order of importance, don't we? We shouldn't do that, but we do. But we gather a bit of insight concerning what it looks like for us to deny ourselves and take up our cross. It leads us to be dedicated in prayer and fasting in the world, especially for those who literally are at the mercy of someone's outreach. So we have before us a generation Right now, right here in 2021, even in the Bible Belt of America, we have before us a generation that is desperately in need to hear God's word and see God's word being lived out. Yet Jesus' rebuke of his generation could be directed toward us. His rebuke, of the, his rebuke in verse 17 is not towards the world, it was toward his people. And I think that same rebuke would be towards us, not the world. More on that in a minute, but I think the takeaway is clear from this part of Matthew that Jesus was building a church and he built his church to be a presence, a body wherein relationships are born and fostered, where people know, where people uh, go and where people grow uh, and then go forth from there and represent him. And, and, and in Matthew, we see Jesus choose relationships in communities over crowds. People thought, well, Jesus, don't you want these crowds? Don't you want this attention? And Jesus says, no, I want the one-on-one. I want the, I want the intimate. I want the conversational. I want the relationships. That's what I came for. And the same is true for our generation. He wants us to be connected with one another, however and whatever scale that takes place on Back in Matthew 16, Jesus gave them the keys and essentially he's telling them to be good door holders, to be good caretakers. Do you know what it means to, be, to have the keys to the kingdom of God? It means that you know how to get in and you are the way that somebody else might find their way in. You must be, if we're gonna be anything, if we're gonna be any type of representation for the kingdom of God, we've gotta be a good door holder. As in, we've got to show people that are outside that there's a door for them to get in. Revelation 3 talks about how there's a door that's wide and open that people can get in because they have a little strength. We've got to be a good door holder for a generation that is so far away from God. They don't know they can get to God. Many many of them don't want to get to God, but only if the door is open will they ever know there's a chance. And you and I have been given the keys to the kingdom of God, and we've got to be a good door holder. I feel like sometimes as church members, we think that we're told our our job as door holders or our job as having the keys is to lock the door and bar the door and make sure that certain people don't get in. And that's predominantly what the church is all about in this world. Well, we make sure that we're different from them and then we're separate from them. And there's all about, there's a conversation to have about holiness. But the conversation that we're having tonight pertaining to the keys to the kingdom, we've got to be good door holders. We've got to be good caretakers. 
of people. May we never lose the gravity of this task, this sacred mantle that you have been adorned with. Listen, I know in this world that there, there, there's two sides, people that are really skeptical of everybody and people that often get taken advantage of. And we often think about those extremes and people that are real gullible, people that get taken advantage of, maybe later on want to be you know, more, more discerning and more protective and then vice versa. Listen, I, you know, that, that, those extremes are, are what people use for examples, but I always want to err on the side of grace because it's grace that saves people. And I think that's what the church needs to remember and get back to. This isn't about shouting from the mountain. It's about going one by one and showing the world, showing the world that there's a place for them. Of course, this, this takes time and it would take time for Jesus's generation. Their idea of growing the church was finding the world's finest, selecting people that could bring the most to the table, forgetting that Jesus himself did not start with the best or the brightest. He started with them and they were the far, far from the best and the brightest. And that brings this little boy more into focus. The scripture says that he was possessed. Of course, this was a world, the world they lived in. Anything that seemed to be off about someone, they would chalk up as possession. Whether or not that was always the case, in this instance, it seemed like it was. We don't know what his diagnosis was, but we know that there was no aid or no ally for this child in the world. There was no advocate for this child. And I want you to understand that. There was no category to put this child in. Because the world and its religious system had no time, no patience, no resources for somebody like him. Again, I want you to read Matthew, look at Matthew 14. This father comes and kneels before Jesus and he says, have mercy on my son. He suffers severely. He falls into fire. He goes into water as in he just can't help himself and he has no one to help him. I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. Now, one group of society, one demographic that studies continually told religious leaders in the ancient world that they shouldn't fool with or bother with, the disciples overlooked and bypassed, as well as when they launched this movement. One group that was always left behind was children, especially children that were challenging, had some things working against them. And you can see why studies would tell them don't even try it with kids. Because as we know, kids require more attention more volunteers, more money, more resources, more patient. They require more heart and not everyone has the heart, let alone the other things. Kids will drain everyone of their energy and their time. That's just how it works. Kids offer minimum ROI, return on the investment. They require patience. If there's going to be any results, it's going to take place over a long, extended, expensive period of time. Kids require longer, more frequent prayers, deeper, more trained benches, authentic, more earnest love. If you're a parent, you know this, but if you're just a person that's observant, you know this as well. And this is what Jesus is going to teach us in this text. That part of having the keys to the kingdom requires that we don't miss this fundamental mission for the church. Jesus is none too pleased if the church doesn't put maximum effort behind this, his most genuine passion. You say, how do you know that engaging and reaching kids with the gospel um, and making a place for them within his kingdom is his most genuine passion? Well, I think I have a hunch as to why this is so. Jesus took on the form of God's son and he experienced the satisfying, extraordinary bliss of being a child of God. 
And I think this might've been an unexpected byproduct of the incarnation. Jesus came as the son of God to do a work for the people of the world. But I think as he came as the son of God, there was something about that experience of knowing God as father and being God's child that was unexpectedly satisfying and extraordinary for Jesus. God's eternal word became his earthly son. And and we read in the gospels that Jesus relished this new dynamic and the father relished this new dynamic. Back in uh, Matthew three, when Jesus is baptized, we see the father uh, saying over the son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The father from heaven is saying, I'm proud to have a child on this earth that is mine representing me, that looks like me, that walks like me, that talks like me, that is mine and I'm his. A human being designed to walk with God, finally reaching the race's true potential. And again, we see this again in the transfiguration where the father speaks with bold and loud joy. And if you read the gospels, you see that Jesus again and again reveled in knowing God as his dad, going as far as talking about this equal authority he had with the father, yet he enjoyed being in submission to the father, deferring to the father's will, even when maybe he could have done what he wanted to. And John 5, Jesus says this, and you read these kind of sentences a lot from Jesus. Truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Jesus made it clear, I only want to go where my father goes. I only want to do what he is pleased with. I want to walk in his footsteps. Jesus would eventually go on to say, as in, uh, this is where my close, one-of-a-kind relationship with God has brought me and driven me. This is where it compels me to go. He said in John 10, 15, that just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I am going to lay my life down for the sheep. So Jesus, as he's enjoying this dynamic of knowing God as father and God's enjoying this dynamic as having his earthly son, Jesus says, my goal, my purpose is to give all this up for the sheep. Of course, we're the sheep. Jesus enjoyed the privilege of knowing, of being God's one and only son so much that he wanted to share this privilege with us. Of course, Jesus longed for people to come to this place as early as possible in hopes that they might live their entire lives optimized for God's glory and for God's good. Jesus showed us how awesome it is to be God's child. He shares with us his position in the Father. Excuse me, Romans chapter 8, verse 14. These are some awesome verses if you've never read them before. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs or fellow heirs with Christ. Isn't that awesome? That Jesus says, God, the Bible says we are fellow heirs with Christ. Do we deserve that kind of category, that, style, that, 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 that title? Of course not. It was gifted to us. The passion of Jesus shows why he was so strong in his response from verses 17 to 23 when he rebukes this generation and to drive home his purpose and his passion Jesus dedicates his next sermon entirely to children he gives them pretty high praise as he invites us to place to this place of resting in God and and, and again in his rebuke it makes it very clear that they really didn't take much time for this child they didn't really put much effort into this and that's why Jesus says you were not prepared for this moment And to emphasize just how disappointed he was in them, down in chapter 18, 
verse 1, we find them arguing over who is the greatest. We see this theme throughout the Gospels. We've talked about this. They were always wanting to know who was the greatest because they lived in this world, that, this ranking system world. And we're, we're like this, aren't we? Who makes the most money? Who drives the nicest car? Who lives in the nicest house? Who has the most stuff? Who is doing the best? Well, their business is more booming more than ours. We do this with churches, don't we? Well, that church is bigger and that church has this and they have that and we're doing this. We always are trying to rank ourselves and, 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 and size each other up. And the disciples were like this too. And Jesus got tired of hearing it and he finally put them in their place. He says, and and he called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them. And they said, Jesus, he's not one of us. He's not one of the 12. He's not one of the three. What do you mean he's the greatest? And Jesus drives it home. I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And I think Jesus is not saying that these guys aren't saved because they were, but he's trying to make a point to them. He says, y'all think that just because y'all are in the group and y'all are walking, ta- walking high and y'all are on the mountain with me, y'all think y'all are a cut above the rest. You and your pride are draining you of actually being of use to the kingdom of God. And your pride is blinding you. Your arrogance is cutting you out of truly enjoying the things of God and truly being in God's will. He says, unless you are converted, he's talking to the disciples. Well, they had already been converted, but I think he's trying to say to them, the way y'all are acting, y'all don't behave like people that have been saved by the grace of God. Y'all are behaving like religious people that are trying to judge each other and size each other up. And I'll have none of it in my kingdom. Unless you become as a little child, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as, of this, as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Do you see what Jesus is trying to say? If we begin to think we're something because of what we know, of what we've done, how dignified we can act, you know, we, you, you see people, remember the Pharisee that said, I've never done that and I don't do this and I've went there and I've given this and that's what makes me something special. Jesus says, I want you all to be like these little children, these humble children, because they are the greatest in the kingdom. Jesus says that, make, that what makes one great in his kingdom is a measured dependency Complete confidence in God so much that we lean on him as if he is the perfect father. You know, we uh, Christians, we love telling God what we know and we love telling God what we think and we love telling God how, we've, how much we've figured it out, which is far from what a child of God should be about, leaning on and trusting in, depending on the word of God and the spirit of God. And the church was started out as a safe place for God's children, a saving place. This is what it's always supposed to have been and what it should always be. And may I say to every family, to every parent, kids or not, the church, the kingdom belongs to children. Church takes on this form that seems to cater only to those that are competent and sophisticated enough to fall in line. You know, churches, we, cater, we, 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 you know, we, we act like the, you know, we're a business that's trying to cite, you know, take demographic studies and, you know, we, churches go from trend to trend and we go from this thing to that thing trying to cater to the you know perfect demographic and God looks down from heaven and I I would say he laughs but I really think it breaks his heart seeing us miss the point 
You know, while we do that, usually what gets left behind or who gets left behind are children. You know, children, they're noisy, they're messy, they're fussy, as if to say we aren't. We just know when to pretend. Jesus came into a world that had sent kids to the back, escorted them out of the holy place to a waiting place. And I think if you were to ask Jesus, what sermon are you most proud of? What message could you serve up again and again and again? I think it would be this one in Matthew 18, where Jesus says, the greatest are the kids. The children are the heart of the kingdom of heaven. When you shove them aside, Jesus leaves this place. He goes to find them. And this isn't just about little ones. It's everybody. Down in Matthew 18, verse 10 through 14, we hear a familiar parable. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. For the son of man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray? Does not he leave the 99 and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones, what is he talking? talking about children, those that aren't always the priority. You know, in our church world, we're all about numbers. We're all about the 99. We don't really think about the one that often, do we? Those that don't make a splash, those that don't get a lot of attention, those that don't move a lot of heads, Jesus says, if we don't think about the one, the least of these, the littlest of these, we're not thinking like God. God humbled himself becoming a child. If we want to encounter God, we must, we've heard that before, haven't we? We must do the same. Childlike faith is the only kind of faith that moves the heart of God because at his very heart, he is a loving Father, you may not be a parent, you may not be uh, uh, able to relate to that situation necessarily, but you know God as Father, and God wants everyone to know Him as that Father. Our Father's heart goes out to sue and searches for all the laws. We are all significant in His sight. He sees us as His children. He sees us and calls us His sons and His daughters. He longs that we might would call Him Abba, Father. If you read the rest of this chapter, the chapter, in the next chapter, Jesus talks about divorce. He's asked about divorce. And Jesus uses that to pivot once again in talking about children. Because children are who suffer the most from broken homes. And this isn't a message about that. But don't you know how broken our world is? Don't you know who is suffering the most from that? Selfish adults who can't get their way, and when they don't get their way, they just pack their bags and go somewhere else. And you know who suffers? We're going to have a lot of kids on this property over the next week, and I, ma I imagine that most of them come from broken homes. I'm not saying they have it bad or have life in, a, in, a, in, a, in less than a seller state. I'm just saying most kids, if you ask teachers, uh, talk to my sister or Callie, anybody that's in schools, most kids come from broken homes. This isn't a a rarity like it was in Jesus' day. It's a common thing. This is why Jesus amplifies his love all the more. Down in chapter 19, verses 13 through 15, Jesus kind of ends this section of his ministry. Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. You know, when church members, and, and none, this isn't y'all, but when people, huh, I shouldn't have said that. 
when sometimes people that are in church do the same thing again and again that is contrary to ministry and contrary to evangelism and contrary to love and contrary to outreach, I kind of chuckle. And sometimes I think, why would you, what, you know, what's wrong? Why do you continue to work against the movement? It shouldn't surprise us because in verse 13, think about all that we've talked about tonight. How many times has Jesus said, the little ones are the most important? Chapter 17, chapter 18, twice. And here, the little ones try to get to him and they rebuke them. Religious people are hard-headed. I'm one of them. I'm not judging anybody. We're hard-headed. And may God soften our hearts. Sometimes he has to bump our heads to get to our hearts, which is important and helpful. They wanted Jesus to put his hands on them. And the disciples say, no, 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 this is the Messiah. His hands are not for you. He's the master that can move mountains. He's the master that can talk to the sea. He can heal the sick, but his hands are too holy for you. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid hands on them, his hands on them. And departed from there. You know what he said? He said, guys, this is how y'all going to act. I'm leaving. But before I leave, I'm showing you where my heart is. Jesus says, let the little children. You know what that word let means? It means facilitate. It doesn't just mean get out of the way and say, yeah, come on in. It means go and get them. It means yield to and help. Do not forbid them means don't work against it, but also work for it. Help them. Do not hinder means facilitate, prioritize, maximize the effort. This, you know, this is kind of my annual pre-VBS spiel. I haven't done this in a couple years. I often repeat this charge to the church because I want us to remember what God values the most, who he values the most. And this isn't just about the next generation. This isn't about staying in business. It's about eternity and staying obedient. And I take this far more serious and sacred than most subjects. When we walk as children of God, Ephesians 5 says, be imitators of God as beloved children, walk in love as Christ had loved us and gave himself for us. May we do that same thing. If we do this, we'll see the world differently. We'll show the world more clearly. Because Jesus shows us in this last text, all the hands that could do so many great wonders definitely had a place laid on the hands of those filled with wonder. Because he knew unless he showed love, no one would know love when God's love is shown through us. The kingdom grows around us. But if the church doesn't show love to the least of these, the kingdom will not grow. It will not. And that's why it isn't in most places on the world in this generation. The church can be right and can be clean and can be straight and can be narrow and everything can be perfect. But if there is no love, there is no growth. And if there is no love, there is no power. You know why they did not have the power to help that boy in Matthew 17? Because they did not have a heart for that boy as proof in chapter 19 when they wanted to get the children away from Jesus. So if we don't love, there's no power. It means the gospel isn't getting out. The reason why we don't see genuine conversions in chained lives is because the gospel without power isn't the gospel. It's just information. 
When we love like we're supposed to, sacrificing for one another, putting the church and our contributions to it above everything else, our excuses, our bad days, our prejudices, our busyness, all that goes away. When we love and serve, God shows up. And when God shows up, God moves, he saves, he works, he heals, he resurrects, he changes lives, and he changes the world. What did Jesus say? If you just have a little bit of faith. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about size of faith. He's like, you know what? The the children have a little faith because they're little people. And us big people think, oh, you know, we think we've got it figured out. And he says, you don't have the faith like these little ones have. If you did, mountains would move. Jesus reminds us all tonight that if we're saved, buried under all the stuff we think is more important is a dormant power that God wants to wake up and God wants to remind us who we truly are. So why are we here today? Because somebody loved us, right? And made us know the importance we are, how important we are to God, how we have a place in God's family. There's a voice over all of us today that says, remember who you are. We are children of God. This is a position that sin and the enemy tried hard to keep away and take away from humanity. But Jesus worked even harder and came to make us his own. You know, children need to be nurtured. They need to be cared for and loved and empowered. We need to rest in our heavenly father's arms because we are children too. Unless we remain as children of God, we risk forfeiting the power of God. And if we stay little in the eyes of God or in the realm of God, then we will understand and respect those that are the least and the littlest of these. May that power work through us this week as we show the next generation of church members that they can know God as Father too, that they can receive God's power in their lives. I got to say this, that children's ministry usually is the, the same group of people, you all, are always the ones that show up to do what isn't the most desirable role to, to, to hold in the desirable field to serve him. We have in front of us a sacred opportunity to serve the Lord and to make a difference in the lives of many. And, and if you aren't serving in a specific capacity, you can pray and you can surrender in your own spirit and ask God to make a difference. You can pray and fast along with the rest of us as we serve. Let's make it our goal this week to remember our place as God's children with a determination to show the children among us their place. And here's my three three pillar strategy for this week. May we show the children that they may know. May we show them love that they may know that they are loved. Show them value so they may know that they are valuable. Show them their potential that they may know that they have a great potential. Every one of us have a sacred task entrusted to us. Love them, value them, and show them the potential within them. You may be the first person and only person that ever does these three things to the kids that you get the opportunity to minister to this week. And this goes for anybody you come in contact with every day, not just children. This should be our goal with all people. But especially, as we've heard Jesus talk tonight, especially the least of these, especially the least and the littlest of these. So will you join me in making a goal this week that we might show love that they may know love, value that they may know value, show potential that they may know their potential.
If we do that, we just might change somebody's world. You know, you can't change the world. But if you do for one, what you wish you could do for everyone, you might change that one. And Jesus seemed to say that was what it's all about. 99, they can have their fun. But the one, that's where Jesus is going. And that's where we're going as well. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for this sacred opportunity tonight to talk about uh, one of the most important weeks of the year for us as a church. We'll have a lot of kids in our community this week, many of them that have never felt loved, never felt valuable, and never felt the potential that the Bible says they have. We've heard Jesus say in Matthew 17 that uh, prayer and fasting should be a priority when it comes to reaching children, that they are the greatest in the kingdom by their humility. We should follow their example and that They are the heart that we should welcome them and help facilitate them in coming to God. Lord, would you make a difference in our lives this week by helping us minister to these, the least and littlest in the kingdom. And Lord, help us know every day that we are all children and let us remain little. Let us remain humble. Let us remain your children so we might realize how important it is that everybody else knows this sacred, honorable position child of God. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. We thank you and give you this week in Jesus' name. Amen.